Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David. I'm well. It's been, uh, yeah, a good, good productive day. Got some good. new Excellent. projects on the go and trying to finish off this textbook, which is kind of the monster in my room. But uh, I'm, I've made peace with it, so that's good. It's very important to make peace with a monster because very rarely you can kill them or really even get rid of them in any way. You just have to learn how to have a truce. Well, I, you know, I used to have this uh, Playboy uh, cartoon. I, I've forgotten who the illustrator was. One of their famous stable of uh, artists. And uh, it was a, a mad scientist, a typical mad scientist, right? And he's surrounded by all these just crazy creatures, you know, with horns and tentacles and stuff. And he's got this woe-begotten look on his face. And he says, I spent 27 years making monsters. And what do I end up with? A room full of monsters. And uh, I just think, you know, that is the writer's life. You know, what do we, you know, you spend all your time working with words and what do you end up with? Well, you end up with a lot of words, you know. Um, no, oh, that just makes me think of current online social media when people post things or write articles about the abysmal state of their mental health. Well, what have you spent the last 10 years doing? It's exactly right. It's, you know, it's as simple as diet, isn't it? I, I think this yeah. is the thing that really gets me about a, as you get older, you think, well, look, you're going to get on top of all these things. Certainly anything that's common sense, at some point, common sense will sink in at some point. Maybe it takes, you know, decades, but but no, you know, it's still possible to think, oh, I could eat all this crap on Oh, I feel awful. I wonder why, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. people who, you know, take in terrible information. Well, our psychologist friends can tell you anxiety attacks, depression, dissociation, you know, none of these things are great mysteries, really. You know, who are the happiest people? Well, people who get outdoors, move around, oftentimes involvement with an animal. Yes, stable relationships uh, do happen. But uh, I did find out, incidentally, that one of uh, the, the tribal groups in New Guinea who's been they have had a kind of good relationship with Western and Asian anthropologists, and they have been found to be the the happiest people in the world. The least huh. incidence of depression, the most sense of of self stability, um, the the greatest sense of connection. And I mean, it's very interesting what's going on. It's very hard to replicate you know, those conditions on a broader social scale, uh, you know, for, for people in our situation. But the, the absence of technology, the absence of social media, the absence of junk, mental, spiritual, psychological, technological junk food is, is the key, you know. And, yeah. and we can do that. We can put some filters on, you know, and and we can at the same time strengthen our immune systems, uh, you know, through through community, through being around people who actually do reinforce us in a good way. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I'd go outside to play and there was a playground that had a zip line. that was very cool, not very far off the ground, but it was strung between two trees and you could it was a sort of a 
contraption where a stick came down from the zip line and you sat on this circular seat and you just kind of you were able to really rip across this zip line especially if you had a couple of buddies give you a running start and i remember we would have competitions to see if you could push somebody to where they hit where the zip line ended fast enough which wasn't the tree there was some sort of buffer there <laughs> and to see if you could actually uh flip you could you know the inertia or the the movement of it would would kick you up I remember playing outside with that all day long and coming in and um, feeling high from being out in the sun all day. And I say all that to say that I took my son for a walk the other day, just a walk around the block. We have a pretty decently nice stroller and I had just gotten done mowing the lawn and, you know, I plopped him in put the dog on the leash had the you know sort of the dog in one hand stroller in the other and i was walking around and after mowing the lawn and going for that walk i was transported back to that moment in my childhood and i thought to myself you know are these moments of simply being in the sun on a bright beautiful early may day are they so foreign to my experience as a millennial american in 2021 that I have this direct connection now with a with a past where that was that wasn't a special day that was Tuesday or that was Wednesday, you know. Um, but I came back and uh, my son had just completely knocked out on the on the ride over. He was fussing a little bit, but after being rolled, he you know he gave up. So I put him down and I sat there and I thought you know. I haven't done drugs in a very long time and I haven't even had a drink, but that sunlight and that walk was completely intoxicating. Well, literally it is in terms of, of the neurochemistry of it. You know, there's absolutely, I mean, we, we, you know, go around thinking that we're, you know, kind of mannequins and that sometimes we take in some external chemical substances and that can modify us but we're we're chemical ecologies minute to minute and you know the reaction to the sunlight you know the vitamin d the whole dopamine endorphin thing you know it's just it's incredible and i think you're going to see a lot of that uh in his you know early responses to the world on a very you know, primal, immediate level. And I think that's going to probably trigger a lot of residual, you know, deep memories that you haven't, you know, touched base on in your own growing up. I think that'll be really exciting. Yeah. So the sunlight is a big one. The other one had to do with sort of picking him up and putting him down. So I would hold him and walk. You know, we have the baby Bjorn strap that I can put him in to carry him from place to place but there became this issue where as soon as i would put him down he would begin to cry and so of course i look online and it's not colic because he's not showing any real signs of discomfort he's showing signs that he wants to be picked back up so i look this up online and for everybody who's listening out there who is a parent or grandparent don't laugh at me i'm new at this but i looked it up online and i, I said is this is this a normal thing and what I read made so much sense to me. It said, well, you know, primates, right? We we need to be held. We, we're supposed to be carried around. And I think of nature photography that I've seen of monkeys with their babies on their backs. And I'm like, oh, okay, right. Human contact, skin to skin, right? 
So I'll do something like take my shirt off and, you know, take his clothes off and just sort of hold and walk around. And it's, it feels like magic because it's not a, it's not a medicine that I bought from Walgreens and it's, you know, not one quick trick that I learned from a listicle on Buzzfeed that was trying to sell me baby toys. Uh, it's putting my skin on his skin, right? And, and putting him in the sun. So I don't know, take from that what you will. Nothing more real than that. Nothing more real than that. You know, that makes me think of one afternoon and uh, I was driving down to the coast in South Africa and it's just this weird landscape, beautiful dwarf ginkgo trees just looked like, you know, dinosaurs would sort of come wandering out. And the sky was backlit, tremendous sunlight, but this thunderstorm coming. And I wanted to be down in the water when the thunderstorm hit. And this enormous troop of full-size baboons crossed the road. And, you know, the chieftain of them stopped. And I I stopped my car. I was just so stunned. Mm -hmm. And he just looked at me. And behind him, the whole group comes through. And the females, most of them, had babies on their backs. And they moved like just this beautiful flowing thing over this reinforced fence into a protected section of, of land. And I thought, you know, I would, ki- I would have killed myself climbing over that fence. <laughs> uh, I, I, even when I was young, I, I could have done that when I was really at peak fitness. But, but even like, you know, army rangers and special forces would have really had some thought about that. And they just flowed over it so beautiful. And I thought, I mean... A baby, like these are big baboons, and a baby, you know, baboon would have been no easy thing to behold. And and there are still babies. It's not like they've got the drill of like, oh, you know, I've I've got to really be easy to carry here. You know, they're they're infants and they're crazy and they're going off and doing all the difficult things that young animals do. And these mothers, kind of a nice thing to think about on Mother's Day. Mm-hmm just were so beautifully athletic and under control. Uh, it was just just a great... So, yeah, all these things go back to a very, very deep level. And, and there's nothing more... Uh, it's just one little other story you just made me think of. You did this to me about sunlight. I'm loving it. Yeah, it's great. My next-door neighbor for years uh, was a gal named Marianne Thomas. And... Uh, I kind of, I, I got a little bit sweet on her as we grew up a little bit. I certainly noticed when she got a training bra, let me put it mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, she ended up moving away. and But she was just kind of, you know, the girl next door. Right. And uh, she would get so involved in certain things with a really passionate kind of innocent heart. And uh, one day we were in... Um, math class and mrs folger was kind of a pain she was a real sharp uh she was cool finally when she got pregnant and then she read flowers uh to algernon to us but she was pretty mean up to that point and she looks over at marianne who's just staring out the window and she goes marianne what what do you look what's wrong and marianne just turns her face and says you know I can't believe the sun is a star Mm -hmm. and it's 93 million miles away. 
And Mrs. Folger kind of had to shut up because it's sort of a math sort of thing. I mean, it's more science than math. But she, the 93 million Marianne snuck in there, you know. And she, that was literally how she was. She would just suddenly just get so... Um, and I, I'm pretty sure she would she would have become a scientist. I've lost track of her, of course, over the years. But, yeah, these these miracles around us, you know, all the time. And, and thank God for whatever snaps us out of our uh, catatonia to yeah. uh, remember what's actually happening. That was what I was going to uh, segue, because I think it's sort of along the lines of what we're going to talk about today. The whole idea that you can spend your day <clears throat> you can spend your day around people that you like uh talking to them uh grilling i love the smell of a grill the family across the street you know it is mother's day so they have this big gathering and i can smell the barbecue i had my mother and my stepfather come visit in the morning and my my biological father visit in the afternoon and I'm thinking, you know, again, and it's a beautiful day, a little bit windy today, but a beautiful day. And I'm thinking about, you know, these memories of playgrounds. And I'm thinking about, you know, not just sunny days, but, you know, days when I lived in Germany and it would snow and be, you know, colder than I've ever been before, you know. And I'm thinking there's a way that you can live where <clears throat> a lot like that troop of baboons, you know, where you're you're outside, you're moving you're interacting with the world around you. You're you're reading great books, and I'm I'm talking about books, Chris, that are you know, over a hundred pages here, right? Like real books. Uh, <laughs> you know, interacting with the ideas that are in them, being bored by that book, falling asleep with that book in your lap, and then waking up, picking it back up, and starting again. Eating good food that you cooked yourself. Going to stores, interacting with strangers. And sometimes when the time comes, uh, maybe having to fight, maybe having to fight somebody who's putting yourself or someone you love's life in danger, you know, maybe sometimes turning on uh, the news or reading even better, this one's better, reading the newspaper for a few moments to kind of figure out like what's going on in the world, having a general sense of what's happening, but then really getting back to a sort of uh, clarity and connection to this present moment. And you can live that way rather than in this arconic black iron prison of constant 280 character streams of, of, of data. I, do you know how dystopic Twitter would sound if you explain Twitter to somebody in the year 1999, right? Right before Y2K, when all of our fears were just that computers were going to be too stupid to know that it was the year 2000 and that they would reset to 1900 and erase bank records, etc. That was the big fear that planes would fall out of the sky right. to tell them that 20 years from then we would live in a world where we kept a device in our pocket that in an almost, you know, Philip K. Dick sci-fi way was just transmitting demonic psychic signals into our brain every time we turned it on, right? Imagine a slot machine, but you can carry it with you everywhere. And instead of maybe winning money at the end, the most you can hope for with Twitter is not wanting to kill yourself when you turn it off, right? But at the same time, you're addicted to it. So just think, instead of doing that, right? Instead of being a part of all of that, there really is this alternative world of 
nature, culture, magic that exists and it's right there. But we've got to, we do have to stage a jailbreak here. Well, we absolutely do. And we can't, uh, I mean, where it starts, I think, is taking some self-responsibility. It's like breaking any addiction, you know, Um, we we can blame the the system of of technology and commerce and and pressure and stress. I was thinking about the word stress. Stress is one of my fault line words. You notice that it gets used in two different ways, and that's what I mean by a fault line word. And it's a, it's a real problem because you can talk about stress as the external factors that are are causing. Uh, problems. Or you can talk about it as the internal experience of those problems. And you can listen to a conversation with two people who are using that same word, and they're using it in entirely different ways. And the implication is that when you talk about the stress you experience internally, that it's justified, Mm. you know, that there's a real external cause, you know, behind it. And that may not be true. Mm -hmm. And if it is true, so what? You still got to deal with that experience. And we all can break out of these very strange patterns of of addiction, these invisible pet fences that are keeping us kind of contained and contained in a pretty miserable condition. You know, I mean, I think that's really the, 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 the problem. If we were contained in security and stability, and to some extent we are, um, that would be okay. But the price of, of any stability seems to me to be way too high. And it's gotten far too high in the last 20 years, escalating every month, it seems to me. Um, so there has to be some rehabilitation plan, but it has to start with ourselves, you know, to break out of little patterns. One That's one of the things that the textbook is actually looking at. It's not about writing at all, per se. It's about really freeing an internal sense of imagination and capability to, to not just go along with the program of, you know, ingrained misery and, and unaccepted, unexamined addiction to things that we're not even sure about. All these signals coming in from all these different places, all these opinions that we seem to, you know, what you need to know this week, what you need to know today about this issue. It's like, wait a minute, why do I need to know anything about this, you know? <laughs> How you how I mean, <laughs> how you play is what you win. Well, it's so it's so true. But um, well, all of these these uh, issues are are you know really components of of what we're uh, going to talk about today, and kind of the larger framework that we've been working on. I think, which is really. Uh, trying to come to terms with some of the peculiarities of, of modernity and, and trying to give ourselves some clues to, to how to navigate it better. You yeah. know, um, navigation is, is a good theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very interested in this. And I think that moving from our diet of illusion talk, I get, I believe we gave a little hint as to what we were going to talk about today. But uh, as per the format of the show, I am curious, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Well, what we're going to do is segue from this idea of the diet of illusion, a a thesis that the modern age in particular marks a dramatic shift in in cultural history, Uh, certainly within the, the Western frame, but I think we can expand that to the developed nations 
frame, I really don't see that any part of the world, certainly not the major cultures of India and China and the complexity of South America, I can't see anywhere in the world that is free of this. Um, they're coming at it from different points of view. It's a jigsaw response, but uh, it's there everywhere. Um, just as we can find cell phone coverage almost everywhere, just as we can find people who know what television is. There's a reason for that. You know, the disease is spread, to use pandemic terms. And I think in this episode, we should try to sort of peel back this, this concept of illusion. Where does that come from? What is that? I mean, looking at it within a, in the idea of a diet of illusion, maybe we could break it down as we would a, a meal or food, you know, components, you know, like the equivalent of, say, carbohydrates, proteins and fats. You know, look at let's look at some of the elements of illusion. Um, and we're not saying that the idea of illusion, you know, began with modernity, which we can safely say, I think, begins somewhere really in the 19th century, perhaps in a few very special cases, the late 18th century, but really with the rise of mass communications in, in, in the mid 19th century and the rise of industrialization. I think that's really where the, the wheels get turning. But we do know that there has been a, a lifetime uh, belief that the world is not what it appears, that, I mean, every major culture has had some idea of a hidden reality beyond the veil. I mean, that's the basis of magic and science. Uh, language is proof of that. Um, so the cultures, you know, around the world have had this, whether it's the idea of Maya, the world is all illusion, um, the world is all a stage, you know, we've had that. But what I think you and I have been talking about with the diet of illusion is the commodification of it, the mass production of it, the mass acceptance of mm -hmm. it, and a kind of uh, protocols and codes uh, that have been established now that have really ingrained this on a very day-to-day, -day, almost moment-to-moment -moment personal psychological level. Mm -hmm. And I think in today's episode, what we <clears throat> could explore is one of the key mechanisms, one of the big food groups to, to mix metaphors, but keep with that analogy, is the idea of celebrity, um, which has changed dramatically in, in my lifetime. Um, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time, but I think it, it's something that new media has changed a great deal. I think as we progress this discussion, uh, I'm anticipating that some of your ideas and senses of celebrity will be different than mine, and not just on a personal basis, but I mean on a generational uh, basis. Mm -hmm. But I thought we might look back at how the idea of fame and celebrity has has changed over time. And I, I, I've picked out three kind of um, quirky uh, figures from the past, real figures from the past. Um, so that's one of the first things we want to talk about with celebrity is that we're not talking about mythic figures, uh, Hercules. You know, we're not talking about Zeus or, you know, figures from world mythology. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, we're talking mm -hmm. about people who are actual 
human beings to some extent. And that in itself is an enormous transition. So we're talking about some validation of history and certainly some faith in history. Um, I mean, we don't really have any faith necessarily that Gilgamesh or Christ uh, really existed. There's, There's issues about that. Uh, the Buddha, well, you know, Muhammad, yes, we have some agreement on that, but it, it's complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated. Yeah. So I've chosen three people who we're, we're very certain did live, even if some of the uh, stories surrounding them may be uh, larger than life. And I think that's one of the definitions of celebrities is, is people who, who seem to be larger than life. And uh, the first one I'll throw out from the ancient world is Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that embodies that Homeric epithet of Alexander the Great. You never hear just Alexander. It's always Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. And as, as people know, I mean, he was uh, a famous student of Plato. Uh, he was a military genius, supposedly. He died very young, perhaps at 21. And he was famous for, you know lamenting that there wasn't more world to conquer you know he's kind of a james dean uh kurt cobain but with a spear and a shield you know he's early rock and roll he's just there's so many things uh tied up in that that figure and of, of course he is a cultural hero but not say maybe in the same way that Hercules was right. for the Greeks. Right. He he really is, uh, but nevertheless, there are a lot of really interesting um, mytho- you know, mythological sort of elements. One of the things that I love is he's often depicted in tapestries and ancient artworks. There's a story from the mythic part of the life, not the real part, the legendary. Side. So he's he's kind of half in one world, half in the real world, right? Mm-hmm. But he was imprisoned in this iron cage, and he's trapped, right? Mm-hmm. And he, these griffins, you know, winged monster griffins, are going to fly him, and he's they're going to drop him into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he has a spear, though. And he manages to get one, and I think this is the right story, but he, he, he manages to kill one, and he has the liver at the end of his spear, mm. and he uses that to bait the griffins that are still flying the cage. Mm-hmm. So it's this beautiful visual metaphor. It's, it's crazy the way all you know, mythologies around the world are. I mean, it's, it's, it makes perfect sense in that mythic sense because it's it's nothing that any one person would write you know like an author in a you know upper east side apartment it's crazy it's culturally crazy but here he is trapped trapped and yet he's steering the griffins from inside the cage yeah and i just think that is this beautiful statement about the human spirit and the adventure culture hero statement uh So we start off with these great larger-than-life figures. And then as we move forward in time, something starts happening to them. And the stories around them change. They become much more relatable. Mm -hmm. 
That's a word I never let my students mm -hmm. use. But they become more relatable. But yet, they need to be, up until fairly recently, they needed to be from a very, very different world. They needed to be... Well, like screen stars, imagine, you know, the greats of larger than life up on the silver screen. But starting back in a figure that I really enjoy is Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, an opera singer, no less. Imagine an opera singer being really famous today. <laughs> she was the biggest thing in the world. P.T. Barnum brought her to New York in 1849. She did 300 concerts. No, sorry. Um, how many concerts did she do? I get that exact. No, sorry. She did th 93 concerts, which raised, um, which were seen by over 300,000 people in the end. Um, that's huge. But she, she, it generated $15 million. Oof. The merchandise items alone with her name on it totaled over 525. What year did you say this was in? Any 1849. I got I got to do this some quick calculations. Sorry to the listeners here, but this has always fascinated me what that would be worth today. Uh oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. I'll look at this while while you talk. <clears throat> but we're talking like the first rock star. Mm. We're talking about people who lived in podunk, podunk towns, and in some cases, remote farming communities that were near podunk, podunk towns, and they heard of Jenny Lind. Mm -hmm. She was the first star that really crossed over to a mass audience of both men and women. I mean, women wanted to get her, their hair done like Jenny. Can you imagine that? In 1849... Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's it, it's simply breathtaking. Her parade in New York City and imagine, you know, New York City, you know, Manhattan was not the Manhattan of 1969 for the ticker tape parade for the astronauts. And they didn't even have ticker. They, you know, ticker tape was not the thing that which comes from, the, you know, the stock market. But it, the parade was that intense. Mm. This was something that was this was a goddess. This was some sort of piece of excitement that brought average people's lives, hardworking people's lives. This was not just a figure of, you know, rapture and attention for the aristocracy. You don't do that kind of business, you know, um, performing just for, uh, you know, the famous rich people, do you? No, you know, no. she was she was right down there as a great popular grassroots figure. I'm really at a loss why she's not the subject of a tremendous uh, epic film, you know, because the music's all there. And she was a really, really good musician. She was she later retired to be um, a full professor at the Royal College of Music in, in London. Mm -hmm. And uh, but she was so well known. When she, when, when Barnum, imagine P.T. Barnum, who I think is the ultimate American culture figure oh, yeah. in a way. Agreed. Um, I mean, no one, only one person who, who was recently in a major office, I think, has ever kind of approached that mm -hmm. level of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and he is, you know, I mean, he, 
he didn't invent the expression the ballyhoo, but he certainly he we think he didn't invent bamboozle. He certainly loved that word and made it very very popular. And he was a genius at bamboozling. But when he was negotiating with Jenny Lind, and we're talking about someone who negotiates with human skeletons and uh, you know pygmies from the dark continent and all sorts of. Uh, sideshow acts, some of them real, some of them not, uh, and some of the most amazing performers uh, in a circus sense. So he's used to some, you know, pretty intense negotiations. She was the first person to uh, refuse his terms and set her own, Mm. which he met. Mm. She was the highest paid performer in the world by a factor of 10 in her moment. Holy cow. So when we talk about Madonna and Beyonce and all these, you know, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, they're, they're, well, I don't know if we would have had them. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this whole thing would have ever really taken off without Jenny Lind. So she's my second one. And then as a nice sort of bookend for the, the, the triad here, I've got Bingo, Bing Crosby from Spokane, Washington. He went to Gonzaga. Uh, which is more famous for, it's really only famous for basketball and for, for Bing Crosby. Um, but the first multimedia superstar of the 20th century, um, the, the precursor to Elvis, mm-hmm. um, you know, he conquered radio and advertising television and advertising film and advertising music across many forms. Um, I mean, just huge, beyond belief. Up until Elton John recorded the revised version of uh, Candles in the Wind for Princess Diana, uh, White Christmas was the number one selling single of all time by far. Whoa. Um, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, Rockin' Around the Clock was came in close, but White Christmas was, was really, and still is huge. Bing Crosby was enormous. And uh, I, uh, I did, I have to say this just because it, it's true. Uh, while on a psychoactive substance, I watched uh, Bing Crosby fall off the stage at Ambassador College in Pasadena, California. And I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. But it was kind of a religious moment, though, because of, well, it was Bing Crosby. He fell off the stage and I was tripping. Right. <laughs> it was just one of those moments. So, but I, I just want to throw out as our opening gambit here, this idea of a thread of what celebrity might mean, just so we can start to interrogate it, because there are so many huge stars we could look at. And I thought I'd pick out a couple of of odd, I mean, they're they're all sort of oddballs, and they do kind of work in a strange way together. But one thing you can definitely say is is a common factor is that they were known by everybody mm-hmm. of their time and they they absolutely meet the standard of of name recognition if that's the beginning point of celebrity i would suggest they are strong contenders so that's my that's my opening pitch here for you to kind of dismantle thank you for letting me go on i needed to introduce the three of them i think to get them working as a yeah yeah as a concept right okay so and it's interesting that um so what I'm seeing, first of all, with Alexander the Great is that his celebrity and his fame 
So in his lifetime, was his celebrity and fame one of admiration or fear? Would I guess it's hard to say. It's hard to say, right? That's a beautiful. That's a. I I think you're. Oh, I love how you do that. Um, <laughs> got a laser mind. See, sometimes it's good to let me just do a little bit of wandering, and then you come in with. That is a very very beautiful way to break that down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it, it's absolutely both, but it really is a great way to start the discussion about the idea that celebrity could be based on fear that uh, and that will degenerate over you know history in terms of, of the of notorious you know our gangster heroes Al Capone and stuff but I think that's a good question I think it's a mixture of both um, I think it depends on whose side geographically and historically you relate uh, Alexander to but I think a large part of the of the the known world then, would have said fear. Right. Absolutely. Right, because Genghis Khan also comes to mind there too. Um, yes. All of these great conquerors and rulers. Uh, Genghis Khan, by the way, very fascinating character. Anybody, You like hardcore history, right? Did you ever listen to their mm-hmm. Wrath of the Khans series? <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was great. <laughs> yes. It was just great stuff. Yeah. So thinking about celebrity, first of all, in terms of um, aspirational or, or fear, uh, and then you move on to Jenny Lind, and it really does seem to be, this is the mid-19th century, it seems to be moving into a more, um, well, definitely, I don't think anybody feared Jenny Lind except maybe P.T. Barnum during those negotiations. It does seem to move more towards um, neither of those things, right? Because I also, and this is perhaps assuming too much, but I have to assume that in you know 1849 there weren't very many people who believed that you know one day they would become a Jenny Lind right there was she fulfilled a role almost like a queen right almost like royalty very good very good um, well said so so there's this third thing then which is uh, uh, there's an admiration aspiration and fear okay and then uh, I think you could probably slot Bing Crosby into that admiration bit too, but it becomes interesting, right? Because now we're in the age of recorded media and television appearances. And so now we're kind of moving into, you can see this person and you can hear them through a filter. You don't have to see Bing Crosby live to, to really become a fan of him. But I wonder if that doesn't taint celebrity in some way, because the thing that Jenny Lind and Alexander the Great have in common, as far as I know, is that neither of them have any uh, recordings around of anything that they said or did. That uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking obviously about, you know, audio recordings or visual recordings. There, I'm sure there, there's tons of written written accounts of these people. So when you get to Bing Crosby, now you have the ability for somebody to hear uh, objectively. They're able to hear White Christmas on the radio or on a record. And here's what's really interesting about it. It it allows them without seeing the person in front of them to craft a judgment. So you have for the first time the ability for a listener to say, I don't like that. You know, that's, that's not for me. So it's mm-hmm. almost a breakdown of the myth-making process because in Alexander the Great's case, you're hearing... Uh, second, third, fourth hand accounts of what he's done. He's already called Alexander 
the great, you know? So it's, it's presented to you with a great men of history vibe. And then you have a person who was doing these mass concerts for people with this amazing voice in these huge crowds. The, the mass of the crowd itself was probably a psychedelic experience to begin with. And then when you combine it, when you hear what some really great opera singers can do, you want to talk about the sun getting you high. I mean, those sounds can get you a little high as well. So most people probably left those concerts having probably tied a good a good little buzz on and uh, feeling pretty good. But the very specific thing in what leads me towards our current present moment uh, is this idea of the recording, of, of the ability to listen to a Bing Crosby song uh, after you just got into a fight with your wife, you know, and you're sitting out in your garage, your musty, sweaty garage, irritated, drinking Coors Light by yourself, and then a song comes on, right? And the, the ability for you to completely sort of not get caught up in the ritual of the of either the myth or the of the experience but to actually have these people infiltrating your daily life i think that is a beautiful beautiful breakdown analysis of of the link between these three figures and the the vector that that's working and i hope people really really catch on to that because we 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 start with a figure such as alexander the great who is partially cloaked in in really true mythology from the past but emerges as a real historical figure that is agreed upon but we can tell stories about his life we can we can participate in that mythology and grow that you know then we have Jenny Lind emerging at a point when mass communications are really just in their infancy really and she must have been a kind of religious experience for many people of the time. The beauty of the music, a kind of music they weren't exposed to, mm-hmm. a kind of, of, you know, a sense of stardom and a queen from another country. I mean, imagine, you know, really, you're, you're out in the middle of, uh, you know, a potato field in Vermont or a field in, in Indiana, you know, with some, you know, maybe you're feeding hogs and, you know, or plucking chickens, and you get a chance to see and hear this angel from another country that you'll never get to see, and you really don't know where it's on the map, and certainly Americans today don't know where it's on the map. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and, and suddenly you're visited by this amazing experience. But then I think it's very important what you've seized on with, with the word recording. And I don't know if people have... Um, Checked out David Byrne, you know, the former mm-hmm. lead singer of, of Talking Heads. He has a great book, which was published by McSweeney's, uh, which is about the music business. I think it's how to, I can't remember what the exact title is, but it, it, it's, um, each of the chapters is standalone. Some of it is very pragmatic advice about how to make a living as a musician. And he acknowledges that a lot of, of what he's saying there is going to be outdated. But the first chapter is really the important one where he talks about the difference between music pre-recording era, where all music was really composed and performed specifically for a particular venue, a particular audience, a particular occasion. You know, it wasn't meant to be portable because it couldn't be. 
you know? And when things got recorded, the nature of music changed. And what he would say about a figure like Bing Crosby was that suddenly we could make a decision which we couldn't make with Jenny Lynn. We could invite Bing into our homes. We could invite Bing into our living room. We could invite Bing into our car, you know, mm-hmm. via the radio. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, of I mean, we, we made those sorts of stars more familiar they lost the gloss and the grandeur mm-hmm. of, of a Jenny Lind. Yes. You know? Right. And they became something more domesticated. And I think to be fair to the, to, you know, when, when we do look back at these great figures, it's amazing how much star power they had, how much they radiated this, this energy that was, you know, simply above, uh, you know, normal. I mean, these were not average people. Um, they really had uh, something. So they had charisma. Mm-hmm. You know, charisma, mm-hmm. I think, is real. Uh, there's a beautiful, you know, the, the, the movie Bullet, the Steve McQueen, uh, Robert Vaughn, Jacqueline Bissett movie is celebrating a big anniversary. And Jacqueline Bissett, who's still alive, I think she was, when Indian Prom, was the most beautiful actress that I could imagine. Um, she has some lovely things to say about just the sheer physical uh, impact of, of Steve McQueen. Not that he was a great actor necessarily, but just the the personality power. So something changed with the recording, with film, with all these new media. Um, and our, our ratio of how we related to these these star figure hero angel gods, you know? Yeah, you know what's funny about the idea of an energy or an aura when my wife and I were waiting in LaGuardia to board our flight to London, um, you, you know, they're boarding all of, all of the service members and all the first class people. And uh, Nick Cave walked on the plane, right? And, you know, he's a cool. great big tall guy. Uh, he's got the black suit on, hair slicked back. And I saw him and, and thought to myself, you know, holy shit, that's Nick Cave, Right. And Rios, who has no idea who he is, right? She, she, her musical tastes are completely different than, you know, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. She turns to me and she said, that guy's famous, isn't he? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, he's famous. But she could tell. She could just tell. Yes, yes. That's, that's a great, great example uh, from real life. I get that entirely. That's kind of what we're talking about. Well, let's, let's prosecute that a little bit. How, how does that, beyond a kind of intuitive, immediate, visceral, imaginative, uh, almost back brain sort of response, which I think is what we'll get to, that it can't be really uh, reduced, what do you think's at work there? Why, if you if you'd asked her in that exact moment, why? What would what would it be? How would you articulate what that that freight that he was carrying or expressing? What was it? If I had to reach around in the dark for it, I'd have to imagine it has something to do with the the live performance the the concert um the fact that this man since the 80s 
was it the late eighties or early nineties that he started off somewhere around there? Um, he, he was, yeah, he was doing stuff in the eighties. Yeah. So since then, this guy has been in front of adoring crowds. He's been creatively, uh, sort of fulfilling that. So it becomes this, uh, this, this cycle where you're getting love in, he's having a lot of sex. He's doing a lot of drugs. I think it has a lot to do with just that, for lack of a better term, psychic energy that has been accumulating in this one human body for that much time. And I have to imagine that it makes you glow, that it just sort of comes off of you. Not saying, obviously, that he wasn't having just a normal day of getting onto a plane from his point of view. You know, he sort of looked a bit hurried and kind of annoyed the way most celebrities look when you see them in public. Uh, and he's, you know, he's getting on the plane with his little, uh, probably $5,000 roller bag. And I have to imagine that in his mind, he's getting on a plane. He's going to go into the very posh, uh, uh first class area. And, uh, but to the rest of us who don't spend our entire lives absorbing that much uh, psychic energy and adoration and hate, right? Uh, you can feel it. I think you can just feel it. It kind of it, it's almost like um, you know somebody being sprayed with with perfume so much that they always have this residual smell of oak or something like that. It's the best way that I could think to describe it. Well, okay, okay. I know. I, I think that was very interesting. I, I, I've got two thoughts in response to that. Uh, the first is, you know, when we talk about the the art of conning people, when we talk about you know people who have made their living at that, you know, the skill of being a con artist. One of the first things that that always comes up is that when you want to gain someone's trust you ask a favor of them. Huh. You you get them to give you, even just something simple like, you know, could you pass the napkins over? You get them invested in you in some way. Right. You get them invested in you, that that's the beginning of, of getting their trust. Hmm. And then I thought to myself, I, I'm a, a big fan of Venn diagrams. I have ever since I've been a kid. I... I, I just love Venn diagrams as a way of explaining things. And I wonder if with these charismatic figures, that if we could put on sort of like uh, charisma vision goggles that would reveal the, the charismatic psychic spectrum, what we would see in Venn diagram terms is a kind of projection of energy as an invitation to us to give energy back to them. Yeah. That it's kind of this exchange and it, it follows this, this sort of strange, you know, con artist kind of pattern of let's build a relationship together. Mm -hmm. You know, let's build some sort of, of psychic energy thing. And of course this is happening in, in microseconds, well below the level of language, well below the level of paralinguistic communication. It's happening. It, it's such a, uh, an animal. It's happening at a cellular level, cellular memory level, you know? Um, 
And somehow that's been important in terms of our evolutionary survival. Somehow we need these charismatic, charismatic figures as, as heroes and leaders. And they are both uh, beneficiaries of energy and adoration that we give them. And yet somehow we get something back mm. from that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what, what do we get back? Let's 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 interrogate that a well, moment. I would okay. I would definitely like to. Okay, let me answer that, and then I have a question back for you. How about that? Um, okay. So what we get back from it? That's a great question. Um, because in the moment of seeing Nick Cave get onto the plane, I'm not listening to a Nick Cave record, um, but I'm still getting some kind of novelty effect from from seeing him do you think it's something something like a runoff something like this this if we take it hey i think by now listeners get what kind of wavelength i'm on so i'll just go here what if that charisma is some sort of uh, spiritual essential substance of the universe that not everybody has in equal amounts and that you can potentially fill up on by partaking in a particular career. Uh, but what if, what if it's some sort of magic? What if it's a feeling that we don't normally get in our everyday mundane lives? Damn it all. You've just invented a new element. I know. Charisma. You know, <laughs> it's we, we, we could no, but, but some sort of some, you know, I, I, we could do like a whole periodic table of like, alternative psychic elements. I like that. I, I think cool. you're on to something. I think you're really on to something. I think there's a bigger, I think there's a bigger ecology here and a bigger uh, sort of metaphysical realm, not physics, but metaphysics. I, I think that uh, we are talking about a kind of uh, non or irreducible uh, element, so to speak. And it's precious. Mm-hmm. And we have an instinctive, you know, sense of value you know, mm-hmm. we, 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 we treasure it without even knowing what it is. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. So here's my question back to you then. And I think this will be illuminating. Do you know any celebrities or more accurately, did you know any celebrities before they became famous? And was there something about them that made you say, that person's going to make it. Uh, I certainly know some some major athletes, and I, I don't think that quite qualifies because that is such a merit based thing. Of you know, if you were the fastest track star mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in California at a certain level of you know, say high school, major you know, high schools, you, you had a shot at being. Uh, a gold medalist, Olympian, and I don't. I still wouldn't say those people are celebrities. It's, they were great champions. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll pull pull them aside. Um, because, by the way, full disclosure, well, I don't. I, I've never met anybody who's become famous. Well, let me let me deflect that for a moment while I'm thinking, because there are a couple. And I'm I'm wondering if I should mention them. Just. Um, it, the worst case scenario is you and I can have a chat about it and we can maybe bring it back into our next show if we think it's okay to mention. Sure. But I will say this, that uh, I uh, had a father-in-law figure who uh, 
had grown up with uh, a character named Billy Beadle, uh, who Hollywood uh, historians would recognize as William Holden, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who was a pretty major actor. And uh, Holden, Billy Beadle, stuck around Southern California shooting rabbits in the uh, orange groves and fixing cars and uh, eventually, you know, trying out for some films while his uh, cohort was, you know, fighting the war. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was a kind of a false uh, level of competition there because an awful lot of young men uh, who would have been competitive with him for the kind of roles that he started with uh, weren't around, right? And he got a leg up. So I think more often than not, it is not so much about the the inner charisma of people; it's about timing hmm. okay. um, and about being in the right place. And I think that I mean, here's a great example: Milton Berle, who many people. I mean, I don't even know if you know who Milton Berle is. I, I would be completely accepting if you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He was kind of like this old vaudevillian. Did he dress in drag? Uh, he did from time. He did, actually. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't remember. Yes, he did. He was more talented and more versatile than I'm, I'm about to give him credit for. I know a lot of people thought a lot of him. He was Uncle Milty. He, was a, he got in um, in front of the cameras, what he said. That was his only goal the moment he saw a television camera. Mm. That was his only goal. He was very frank about that. He said, this is the wave of the future, and I'm going to get in front of it. I think he was more talented. Um, I don't honestly, he, he was already one of those old uh, sort of Hollywood, Las Vegas. Uh, he smoked a cigar. He was with, you know, friends with George Burns and, you know, just a whole bunch of, it, it seemed very old and, and weird to me when I was just a kid. But a lot of people really knew him. Mean, he was an amazingly, he was a huge celebrity. He made the cover of Time magazine. Um, and oddly enough, uh, when, uh, he apparently was one of the best endowed men <laughs> in Hollywood, which I think is hilarious. Here's this sort of, you know, vaudeville clown without any real talent. But maybe that was the hidden story. But um, mm. George Burns made a very funny joke on, when he died. He said, you know, on Sunday, Milton Berle will be buried. And then on Monday and on Tuesday, another part of him will be, <laughs> um, which I think is, um, I mean, who knows, right? But I, to me, that's an example of not, an, not inner charisma uh, being what's working, but, but timing. Mm. So I think there's a huge okay. difference. I think that, that what Jacqueline Bissett was saying about Steve McQueen, what, what people said about James Dean. Um, I mean, people said that Tuesday Weld uh, was an, uh, uh, an actor who I just thought she was fantastic. She never quite got the, the real breakthrough that, that she should have. I, f- I just find her absolutely hypnotic. Um, I think she was too sophisticated for particularly American audiences. But I have read everyone who ever met her and wrote about it remembered. You know, right, she was right. someone who just walked into a room and just electrified. Yeah. Um, you know, it. Uh, I think there have been. 
there, the, the way that women do that and the way that men have that is, is very different, isn't it? It is, yeah. Because you've also got to, um, and to go back to Jenny Lind, I mean, what women have faced in the, since the rise of, of mass communications and recording and printing, and et cetera, they have faced the challenge of being aspirational and queenly and, and regal uh-huh. and goddess-like but also not making other women jealous. Mm-hmm. And men have faced, male figures have faced it from a different point of view of, you know, you, you've got to be still uh, someone like who could have a beer at the bar with the boys, you know. Um, you can't be, you know, too uh, powerful, too macho, too anything, you know. Um, it's a fine line that these new, or you've got to go completely over the top. And just be, you know, like Prince. I mean, I, I would, it would, I love Prince's music, and I'm very sad that that he's one of those celebrities who died young that I, I feel really bad about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And interesting, I remember exactly where I was. I was teaching at, the, I was writer in residence at the University of Seattle, and all my students just before the class started, so phone action was still go. We were about to shut down um, for class, and they all heard the news. And they knew Prince. He was a celebrity from kind of my sort of zone that they really connected with. And uh, I thought that was interesting. He crossed that line. But, I mean, I could never imagine, you know, meeting Prince for a drink or, you know, seeing him in an airport or, you know, seeing him anywhere except on stage or television. You know? Yeah. And then what I've been hearing as far as our discussion has been going about celebrities is is it a chicken or an egg thing did nick cave was nick cave like that when he was in high school did nick cave become that when he was in his 20s in his 30s or is nick cave just like that now after Mm. all of these things happened to him another person who is sort of from this area that i used to see a lot more than i have recently is a to take us back to an earlier episode is Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips. And he gives off that kind of aura as well. But I can't, you know, the more and more I think about it, the more I have a hard time imagining that an 18-year-old 18, 18 man or woman could give off that kind of aura. It does seem to be something that has been accumulated over time, a, a, a celebrity that has been accumulated. Well, that's an interesting question. I think we're going to, you know, I would really like to hear from some of our listeners uh, about that. I, I think that really, uh, really depends. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me something that, that um, do you remember? I mean, the, the, uh, it's one of, I think, Stephen King's better uh, sort of realistic works, the um, uh, which became Stand By Me, you know, the film uh, about, you know, three, three young kids going off to, uh, to find this dead body. And um, uh, uh, River Phoenix plays one of the young boys. Mm-hmm. And, and he's the, the sort of the juvenile delinquent uh, amongst them. And I have to say, look, when I saw that, I thought, 
that kid really has it. He resonated with, I, I knew a lot of those kids growing up. He, was, he wasn't my stepbrother, but he was a variation on it. He was a mythic figure from young boy history, American history at least. And, and he had that kind of quality to it. And I don't know, I mean, he was too young to, to really have learned any great acting chops. Um, the part wasn't that big. I mean, ultimately he was limited to the script he was scripted, so this wasn't, you know, him delivering this from no. So something in him had that, you know. Um, I don't know if I ever saw that again in his career, and it sadly ended very young. Which, but but that doesn't seem surprising, doesn't? A lot of these people, you know, the Twenty Seven um, Club, yeah. We mentioned, yeah, you mentioned, leave yeah. a good looking corpse. Mentioned Kurt, uh, Kurt Cobain. I mean, you just kind of look at that guy, and he has that face that look to him you know um grunge was really popular at the time but when you look back on it you can just tell even in early mtv interviews that sometimes i peruse on youtube um he's just this extremely compelling looking figure not just his voice but his whole aura that he had about him so i'd have to wonder if when kurt cobain was just starting Nirvana and he was a janitor in Seattle. Did people look at him and say, that guy's going places <laughs> or was he just the creepy janitor? Well, it's, you know, it's very difficult to say. And, you know, you, you've talked about the experience that you've had about sort of a nostalgia for, you know, times and places that you haven't really been connected to, you know, 1970s, New York. I had that, I've, I've had that, very acutely with, because uh, I, you know, I, I, I lived in Seattle um, and my fa- I have family still there, but I, I did my grad school work there. And um, I, but I was gone out of, out of Seattle and out of America, like completely, as completely as you can be with some really very different cultural experience when the whole grunge thing hit. So I was just, I completely missed the wave. But in, in the last couple of years, every once in a while, I will get this just incredibly poignant nostalgia for Nirvana, to some extent Pearl Jam, but certainly Nirvana. And I, I went to the point where I went and visited the awful town that, that Kurt was from. It's not that awful, but it's pretty awful, Aberdeen, you know. And they have Come As You Are over the bridge. You know, they finally ended up being proud of him, you know. Um, and I have no understanding at all what, what the deal was. I, I missed that whole scene. There was a cool club live music scene happening in Seattle. I see where grunge came out of. I see where uh, the, the punk and grunge idea came out of there. Um, but when I was living there, it was more sort of new wave and a whole you know other thing. But I, I, I actually missed it, and yet... I feel sometimes this like just sharp, just stabbing sense of sorrow mm-hmm. and and also kind of joy. And I, you know, I, I don't know where that comes from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you have to attribute that to some extent uh, to him. Yeah. You know? I really do. I mean, and the band, you know, he said our little group, as he said, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, I get that way. And I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
Well, you know, I think that he was still, you know, the immature young man plunged into sort of superstardom. I think, he, you know, a lot of... But didn't he bring all those psychological conflicts to the table? I mean, one minute a plaid shirt and the next a dress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he was just... He did come as he was. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Just as kind of a side note, I, I uh, you're talking about Seattle... I sometimes feel that way about uh, Portland, which I did live in after it was a gentrified hellhole. But I actually feel nostalgia for the Portland of, um, what is it? Drugstore Cowboy, right? Yes. That's the kind of Portland. Yeah, Gus Van Sant, yeah, right? Yeah, that was the Portland that I was hoping for, which might sound strange because it's such a kind of gritty and gross movie. But... Um, but, I get that a hundred percent. I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And oh no, I think that's spot on. And when I went, when I would go to visit Portland for the different conventions, and at this time, obviously, I was still living in Oklahoma before I made the decision to move. I, I got those vibes, and I wonder often when I moved there in 2014. I wonder if I was just just on the cusp of it really sort of turning into something else because there's something about that city that really is um, just a grimy kind of magic. All the the fact that the Forest Park, you know, the biggest inner city park in the country is sort of right there and, and nature seems to be taking it over and the constant rain and everything, even if it's brand new, still kind of looking like it's falling apart and you know the the shamanistic heroin addicts shuffling around on the, on the various trains there's something very compelling about that city but i when i moved there i was really hoping and this is such a fraught thing to say but i'll i'll just say it i really was hoping for a bit more of a of a kind of gritty gloomy experience and it it just wasn't that I know exactly what you mean, and I, I think that's really um, what you've what you've done nicely is is opened up this possible discussion of charisma in terms of individual figures to charisma of landscape and locale and environment. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I think that's a really important point because we none of us we all happen somewhere and somewhere, don't we? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a context we're embedded in, and and. When we talk about timing of, of, say, Milton Berle getting in front of a TV camera, we're really talking about, too, the larger context of, of New York City at a certain moment or Los Angeles at a certain point or Portland or, you know, uh, Seattle or Berlin or London, you know, Paris at a certain moment. I mean, look at how those those patterns of energy move. I mean... Would Paris be that interesting today? Well, I wouldn't turn it down if, <clears throat> if I lived in Saint-Germain or something. Mm-hmm. You know, a beautiful, you know, wood-paneled, uh, you know, high-ceiling department there now. But I wouldn't say it's the, the hotbed that it was at, at certain other times. So I think that's a nice thing to open up for uh, next show and, and to sort of expand this series of how the, the cult of celebrity works into timing and how timing always has some sort of locational grounding, some sort of matrix or nexus or, you know, mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because that that's crucial. I mean, to have been in Hollywood at certain moments would have been a totally different experience than at other times. I mean, like imagine being, you know, during the McCarthy era, that would have been unfun. Yeah. That would have <laughs> not have been a good time to be there. Right. Even parties wouldn't have been cool. But imagine like, you know, being at Charlie Chaplin's, you know, for a party in, you know, at, at early, I mean, God, it would have been like, whoa. Or like a, or like a party at, at like, I don't know. Jerry Bruckheimer or something like, like these 80s action yeah. movies, cocaine everywhere. Oh, geez. It would have been a blast jeez. hanging out with like yeah. Brett Easton Ellis or somebody. You know, I was listening to his oh. new uh, memoir on his podcast, which is definitely worth listening to. He does half, uh, is, the first hour is, is an excerpt from his new book and then uh, the other half is an interview. But in his reminiscing about um, LA during the 80s, uh, again, I got the exact same kind of thing. Where I'm like, this seems like so much fun driving around sunny LA, coked out with your sunglasses on, top down. It just, it seems so cool. And I've been to LA many times. I really do uh, deeply love the city of Los Angeles. It's not quite what I imagined it would have been in the 80s. I'm, I'm not sure where that is in America now i'm not sure if it's a (laughs) it's like a general sort of um malaise or anhedonia or something like that you know about like just everything that's going on but um but yeah la is another one right that that would have been cool it is it is and i i think what you're really suggesting there is that yes uh geography is important and physical buildings and bricks and mortar but what we're really talking about is a state of mind a psychological geography that that comes that that suddenly comes to ignition point at certain moments, uh, and I, I think that's definitely something worth exploring. And I like that both you and I really enjoy Brett Easton Ellis. I mean, um, listeners will know that we we have some arch enemies. We have some people we trash, like Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker. But we also have some people that we think are really cool. And, and Brett's one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he's a great writer or not, but I'm certainly glad that he's around. I think he's I think he's a fun writer. I think he's actually carrying some of the mantle of a literary celebrity, which we, we sadly don't have anymore. Yeah. I mean... He, he kind of... Uh, he is a literary celebrity uh, that also completely infuriates the current literary establishment. They sort of seem to hate that he exists and also that he sells as many books as he continues to do. Um, I like that about him as well. Yeah, and he doesn't give a rat's ass what they think. And he's always been that kind of contrarian gadfly. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the whole point. That He took that on... Uh, that mantle on a long time it's ago, fun. and I, I think he wears it well. What, a fun, what yeah. a fun way to be. Imagine not being a contrarian. Couldn't be me. <laughs> well, you know, for people, like, it's the Hayoka, you know, um, principle of, of the, the Lakota Sioux people, um, you know, that, that kind of, not just the coyote trickster figure, but going even a little bit further with it. So you really are a contrarian. And um, I don't know if people have ever read Black Elk Speaks, which is one of the most beautiful books, full stop. But it's certainly one of the most beautiful books of Native American literature. And it talks exactly about that contrarian spirit. And I think, David, that's one of the ideas about imaginative um, community that we're trying to build, you know, humbly, but to, to really appreciate those 
those spirits of leadership and guidance. Um, and maybe that's what where the celebrity idea started, and it's just degenerated as things tend to do. And maybe we can explore the degenerative process. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe just the dissolution. Maybe degeneration is, is a bit rhetorically slanted. Maybe we should just talk about dissolution in a chemical sense, solvents, you know, breaking things down. Uh, but I do have one final little story just to drop in okay. about Jenny Lynn. Cool. 1849. The president at that time is widely recognized as the blandest, most boring, and inconsequential president in American history. It's not entirely true. He did have a couple of big issues on his plate. But I'm speaking of Millard Fillmore. And I think Millard Fillmore is almost too good a name to believe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you wrote a novel about American history and you were trying to capture a sense Mm -hmm. of inconsequentiality, a bland, everyman president, the nobody who has suddenly risen to the height of power, I suggest that Millard Fillmore would... Feels like a might come feels up. like a Thomas Pynchon character, doesn't it? Well, not quite in the same great luminous uh, paparazzi tradition of JFK and Marilyn Monroe. I just throw this off as a counterpoint. Millard Fillmore did have a private audience with the Swedish Nightingale Jenny Lind, a private audience alone. And here is one of the most completely boring, uh, inconsequential political figures that you can possibly think of, meeting this luminous royal figure and great artist from another country, another world, really. And I can't absolutely verify this, but I do have some belief in the veracity of this. He asked her for a souvenir. We're talking at a time when there were over 500 commercial Jenny Lynn souvenirs everywhere. He wasn't talking about that kind of thing. No, David, he was talking about some pantaloons. (laughs) And I just want to leave our listeners today with Millard Fillmore holding up a pair of the Swedish Nightingale, the most beautiful operatic voice of her time, a pair of her pantaloons in private. And maybe things, maybe the more things change, the more they don't get different. You know, what do you reckon? The audacity, the audacity of this man. (laughs) No, that's great. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely correct. I think that at at their core, we can spiral out, but then we always spiral back in. And there are some core precepts at, at the heart of, of all this kind of stuff. Yep. It's it's milk, lemonade, blood, fudge, and dust. That's right. You know? That's right. It never gets, it never changes. And uh, yeah, I mean... But I love listeners to have a look at what Millard. He looks like Mil, the name Millard Fillmore, mm-hmm. which is 
I think, fabulous. But just imagine him holding up a pair of mid-19th century women's bloomers as, as a great image of, 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 you know, celebrity and power, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely... I'm looking at a picture of him right now, and um, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm gonna to try to sleep tonight, but you, you, you. <laughs> I'm sorry for planning you, that. You, yeah, you might, I hope. Yeah, might ruin that for me. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> well, all right, folks. On that note, Chris and I in this particular episode have suggested several routes forward. These are my favorite types of episodes. Very generative, and you know there are a lot of potential paths we can go on with all of their different uh, trail markers. Uh, pretty much, no matter what, I'm sure we'll get to each one in turn. But until next time, if you have any comments on this episode, <clears throat> excuse me, anything that we'd like you'd like us to read on the air, uh, please do hit us up at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. Please make sure that you are sharing these episodes as far and wide as you can. We appreciate all the work that you've done so far, but Chris and I have some pretty neat uh, plans for extra content and things like that. So we'd like to get as many people on board with that as we possibly can. So before we sign off here, Chris, you got anything you want to add to that? No, just to reinforce, uh, yeah, your call to action. We really appreciate the support. Uh, David and I do have a real agenda uh, to, to grow. We're very excited about this project. We're very pleased and appreciative of the support we've already gotten. But we've got some big ideas of, of where to, to grow and how to take this community forward. So we're trying to get as many people on board um, before we uh, ratchet things up because we want to make sure people are, are, are you know really on board with it um, before we increase the pace, which we have every intention of doing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. And uh, until next time, hope everybody's having a good one. Take care. Thank you.